This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Uh, for those of you who are coming for the first time, I'm going to spend five minutes reviewing. If something's not making sense to you, it's because we've kind of laid the groundwork and laid the framework for understanding the Holy Spirit, the last days, and uh, the mark of the beast. Uh, so why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll, let me make sure this gentleman's in the back. Are we, are we good? Okay. Let's uh, go ahead and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here. We are thankful for the Holy Spirit promise. And we're thankful, Lord, that you not only want to finish the work worldwide, but you want to finish the work in each one of us. Please, Lord, be with us now as we study. Keep us focused. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, folks, as a point of review, just so we are all kind of in the same mindset, the Holy Spirit promise is given in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And in Acts chapter 1, 7 and 8, Jesus promises to his disciples that in his leaving, they are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. That power is coming because God has the authority. Now, if you're reading in the King James, it will use the word power and then the word power. It's very important to understand those are two different Greek words. The one is authority, exousia in the Greek, and we will receive power, dunamis. It's from where we get the English word dynamite. The power, so God has the authority to give us the power when the Holy Spirit falls upon us to become what? Witnesses. Witnesses. We've spent extensive time talking about what it means to be a witness. This word in the Greek is the word martus. It's from where we get the, the English word martyr. And to become witnesses is not necessarily in the context, although it includes, but not primarily to be witnessing. See, the great concern of the Holy Spirit is that there is a work to do in finishing the gospel, but the gospel to be finished in the world first needs to be finished where? It needs to be finished in us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect and then we can go spread the gospel. God is finishing the work in us. And actually, part of the, part of the work of finishing the work in us is finishing the work to the world. Do you understand? Does that make sense to everybody? So to become a witness, my witness is not just when I go out on outreach. My witness is when I go to the store and I buy an apple and an orange. My witness is how do I treat my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, my wife. Do you understand? And so the whole idea of the power of the Holy Spirit falling is that we not only become a people who can proclaim, but we are a people who have been transformed. So that way our talk matches our walk. Very clear? And then to bring us... Then the second question we answered is, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? And sometimes we go through all, and I'm going to talk about that, not this session, but the next session, we have come up with and we have actually adopted 
what I would term pagan spiritualistic philosophies that we have this kind of magic formula and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will fall. But in fact, the Bible is quite clear in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 39, Peter in proclaiming that first gospel sermon after Pentecost says, repent, confess and be converted, and believe. And in those three, not we might receive the Holy Spirit, we will receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, Ellen White writes that as we believe, as we converted, as we repent, we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then is, and we studied yesterday extensively, John 14 through 16, the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is summed up in its three, in His three primary functions. To convict us of sin, to convict us of righteousness, and convict us of the judgment to come. Why is this all important? Because the Holy Spirit joins the Godhead in the primary mission of God in this world, and that is to save mankind. Does that make sense? So with that all, let's talk about the last days. I want to begin by reading a I want, to read, uh, I want to begin by reading a quotation from Acts of the Apostles. The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, how many now does it say? If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension, and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it, pray for it, and preach concerning it? The Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who serve Him than parents are to give good gifts to their children. For the daily baptism of the Spirit, every worker should offer his petition to God. Companies of Christian workers should gather to ask for special help, for heavenly wisdom, that they may know how to plan and execute wisely. Especially should they pray that God will baptize His chosen ambassadors in mission fields with a rich measure of His Spirit. The presence of the Spirit with God's workers will give the proclamation of truth a power that not all the honor or glory of the world could give. Okay? So, and we've talked about this yesterday, and to catch everyone up, the Bible uses multiple terms to talk about the receiving the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit falling on us, the indwelling of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit. All of these are talking about the same exact occurrence with the Holy Spirit. So let's now get into the Holy Spirit 
why the Holy Spirit is important in these last days. Could I have, uh, do you mind running to get a paper towel, my eraser? Oh, no, my eraser hasn't disappeared. Look at that. It has reappeared. thought it was raptured. So, uh, Anyways, so, so, Acts of the Apostles, page 50. I'm sorry. I didn't say the page. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, the Holy Spirit, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in the five great epics, epics be, being spelled E-P-O-C-H, of salvation history. What are the five great epics of salvation history? We have the flood, the exodus, the exile, the first advent, and then judgment and the second advent. How is the Holy Spirit worked in all of those, because if we understand how the Holy Spirit works there, we will understand clearly how the Holy Spirit works in the last days and in the context of the mark of the beast. And what we want to see is this principle of how God utilized the Holy Spirit to inspire prophets to help His people prepare for soon coming events. So let's talk about the flood. Did the flood come upon mankind unexpectedly? It did not. Now, we first and instinctively think, oh, but Noah warned. And that is a very true statement. However, how God works is God will send a prophet at one point. There will be time. And then he sends a prophet to confirm and alarm the people for its immediate fulfillment. So in the flood, what is... God's first warning that the flood is going to come. That is first warned through the son of Enoch. The oldest man that ever lived is Methuselah. Methuselah's name literally means, at his death, it will come. If you do a study of the scriptures, you will find that the very year that Methuselah dies is the very year that the flood came. Okay? But before the flood comes, then God raises up a second prophet to confirm that first message. And who's that prophet? He raises up Noah, who then warns the people. Now we talk about the Exodus. In the Exodus, God's people were going to enter into slavery, but they would not be into slavery forever. The first prophet to predict that they would not be in slavery forever was Abraham. Abraham told God's people that they would be in captivity 400 years. Then just before that is to be fulfilled, God raises up another prophet. Who is that prophet? Moses. And he leads the people in the Exodus. God's people were predicted to go into exile and to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Who are, there are several prophets, prophets, but the main prophet to predict that is Jeremiah. Then another prophet comes in the scene to let God's people know, hey, you're not going to be in exile for, you're, excuse me, you're not going to be in captivity to Babylon forever. Who is that prophet he raises up? Daniel. Daniel then predicts, and God's people are let out. Then God raises up a prophet who predicts, who predicts the first advent of Christ, the Messiah. And who is that prophet? And there are several of them, but who is the prophet that nails the timing of the coming of Jesus? John the Baptist is the one that confirms it's Daniel, and Daniel's prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 
predicts with exact timing when Jesus would be anointed as the Messiah at his baptism. Then John the Baptist is raised up to confirm that prophecy and then also to prepare people to meet the Lord. And then that last epic of salvation history is judgment which leads to the second coming and the deliverance of God's people. Who is the prophet raised up to predict the judgment to occur? Daniel. Daniel predicts the judgment in the prophecy of the 2300 days or 2300 years as found in Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. Are we all together? So then, we know that the 2300 days, the 2300 year prophecy is going to end sometime around 1844. And I'm saying that as we are Bible students and looking at it, I understand October 22, and so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. So we ought to expect during that time that a prophet would be raised up to prepare people for the fulfillment of the ending of that prophecy and the preparation of the end. Now in saying all that, and before I get to the answer on that, which I'm sure as good Adventist Bible students you know who we are getting at there. In each of these instances, there is also a false Holy Spirit prophetic movement. During the days of Noah, what did people say? According to patriarchs and prophets, people said, it's never rained. You're crazy. It's not going to, it's never rained. Why are you building this boat? It's never rained. During the time of Moses, did every, did every Hebrew leave Egypt? No, some of the Hebrews stayed back. And in fact, even as they led them out, there were many Hebrews that wanted to go back. During the exile, did did all of God's people come out of Babylon? In fact, they did not. During the first coming of Jesus, did everyone believe that Jesus was the Messiah? So we should expect, and it should not surprise us, so sometime around 1844, Ellen White comes on the scene. But what else happens during this time of the mid-19th century? Are there other prophets? Are there other prophetic movements that come on the scene? In fact, there are. In, in, in the 1840s, you have the first draft. Now, we need to be very, and we were talking about being precise, we need to be very precise because some people have said that The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin was printed. That is incorrect. The first draft of Origin of Species was available, but it had not yet been printed and published. However, very interesting, because the call of the last days is to, according to the three angels' message of Revelation 14, is to fear God and give glory to Him, and worship Him who made. So we have the rise of Charles Darwin. Some people will argue with me, oh, well, that's not a false prophet. I... According to the Bible, I would in fact consider him a expounder of false doctrine because Charles Darwin's main aim was to point people away from the Creator. Okay? At the same time, you have the rising of Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet of, does anybody know who he's the prophet of? The Baha'i faith, which the Baha'i faith basically accepts all the five major religions of the world. You also have the rising of Joseph Smith. You have the rising of the Pentecostal kind of holy flesh movement. 
And so you have all of this false prophetic activity that should not surprise us. But we come on the scene with Ellen White. Why is this important? Because what does Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 say about who God's people are? They are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is 14, 12. The testimony of Jesus. And according to Revelation 19, 10, what is the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. And who is the spirit of prophecy? Be careful. The spirit of prophecy is the Holy Spirit who gives the gift of prophecy. Does that make sense to everyone? So the last day church is going to have the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy's main purpose is to do what? Prepare the remnant for the second coming. Does that make sense to everyone? So we see how God's people work and how God works in the major epics of salvation history. So now, you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Revelation 12 begins the exposition of the great controversy theme. The main player or the main foe in the great controversy is who? The dragon. And so we come and we see Revelation 12 talks about the dragon being overthrown, the dragon being thrown out of heaven, the dragon being overcome. But then the dragon says, I'm going to need to attack God's people because Revelation 12 explores essentially the dark ages of Christianity, the persecution of the saints. But the devil finally realizes that a frontal assault is not the most effective means in defeating God's people. Because Tertullian would say that the blood of saints is the seed of the gospel message. So it seems as more people are killed, the more Christianity grows. And you actually see that principle even today. But I want you to notice something fascinating and how this all ties to the Holy Spirit. We'll get it all tied together here. Revelation chapter 12, 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman. Who's the woman? The church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring or the remnant of her seed. This is the remnant. This is God's leftover people. Those that are like the original. And it says... Who keep the, so he went to make war. Here's a really fascinating thing, and you were asking me about doing Bible study. Folks, when, I, I want to encourage us all to utilize the tools that we have available to us in concordances and, and commentaries and the different things we have available because that word there, went, actually in the Greek is the word to go away or to yeah to go away or went away now you're saying why is that important well, it doesn't is that a little semantics but let me ask you a question in war in war what do you normally do you attack but the devil said the bible says that he goes away to make war you normally don't go away to make war. Why did the devil go away? Now remember, remember, David Shin mentioned this last night. Chapter and verse division, 
don't exist in the first century. So when John is writing the book of Revelation, he's not writing it in chapters and verses. The Bible says he went away. Where did he go away to? He goes away to get his two friends, the sea beast and the land beast, to defeat God's people. Makes sense so far? Because let's read it as it was originally written. And the dragon was was in range with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Who's who's raising this beast out of the sea? The devil is raising this beast out of the sea as his helper in defeating God's people. Now we are going to see something here that is quite fascinating when we talk about the last days and the mark of the beast. In the salvation of mankind, we have what we call the Trinity. Who are the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see throughout the book of Revelation, we see throughout the Bible, that for every reality that God has, the devil has a counterfeit. The sea beast is often referred to in our theology as the Antichrist. It is very important for us to understand. Many times we think the word anti means to be against. Actually, in the Greek, the word anti means instead of. The sea beast is a substitute, and we're going to see in just a moment, while God has the Trinity, the Godhead, Satan has a counterfeit, the unholy Trinity. The unholy Trinity is led by who? The dragon or Satan. The sea beast rises up out of the water. And let's read about this sea beast and notice some very fascinating things. I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the water, having seven heads and ten horns, and his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Now your good Bible students, instantaneously you should notice something there. Those three different beasts that are mentioned there all come from what chapter in the Bible? Daniel chapter 7. And so we have this sea beast rising that seems to be an incorporator of the leopard, the bear, and the... um, excuse me, the, the leopard, the bear, and the lion, pardon me, of Daniel chapter 7, which were representatives of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But I saw as if one of his heads had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. How long did the beast reign? reign? according to the book of Revelation. He reigned 1,260 days. Is this correct? 1,260 days is how long? Yeah, it's 1,260 years. But this is 
three and a half years. 1260 days is three and a half years if we were counting them as days. Why is this fascinating? Because the son's ministry was three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, what happened to him? He was mortally wounded. What happened to him after that? He rose again. The sea beast reigns for three and a half prophetic years, or literally 1,260 years. What happens after that? He is mortally wounded. What happens after that? He rises again. See, for every reality, Satan has a counterfeit. And so we have this counterfeit. The Father is the authority. We saw in, 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 in and I'm simplifying, we, we could spend years studying the characteristics of the Father. But according to Acts chapter 1, He is the one with the exousia. He is the authority. God has the authority. He, he gives authority to the authority. Thank you. And, and He is, so to speak, the ruler. The Son is the Savior. And the Holy Spirit is the Helper or the Counselor, the Comforter. Very interesting. I had a conversation. Uh, we had a couple that were attending yesterday, and they're, they're, they're from Iraq. And, in, and actually, after they talked to me about this, I went back and did some study in the original. This word helper in the original Greek is the word parakletos, which is only found in two places, in John 14, 16, John 14 and John 16, and then in 1 John 2, 1. It is the same word used to describe Jesus as advocate. That's the same exact word. Here's the fascinating thing. In the original language, Greek is, acquires some of its meaning from various languages. This word in its verbal form actually means to save. The Holy Spirit's whole purpose is not to be a Savior in and of His self. The Holy Spirit is to point to who? To point to Jesus. Wait a second now. Revelation 13, the sea beast. The sea beast comes on the attack. The sea beast is mortally wounded. So it doesn't complete the task. So then the dragon raises another. The land beast. And let's read about some of the characteristics of the land beast. Are you all understanding the term sea beast and land beast? Okay, I just want to make sure I didn't confuse you. One comes up out of the sea, one comes up out of the land. Okay? Verse 11 of Revelation 13. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a... Two horns like a... Lamb. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's to your advantage I go. Why? Because Jesus said he had no omnipresence. So it's to your advantage the Holy Spirit comes because the Holy Spirit, my presence, will come through the Spirit. The land beast. The land beast looks like a lamb. But there's something devious. Because the Bible says he speaks like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. 
Authority given from the Father to the Son. Through the Holy Spirit gives us power. The authority is handed down. Dragon gives the sea beast his authority. And the land beast exercises all the authority of the sea beast, the first beast. Notice it goes on. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Fire coming down on earth in the sight of men. Automatically, good Bible students were reflecting back to where? Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. False Pentecostal fire coming from the land beast. But what else does he do? And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark. Okay, we're going to hit the pause button here. The land beast enforces a mark. Are you all following me? Have we moved ahead of anybody too much? So the land beast, the land beast enforces a mark. There's the mark of the beast. In the, in the book of Revelation, there is the mark of the beast. And what is the real? The seal of God. The mark of the beast is the counterfeit to the seal of God. Who seals us with the seal of God? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 4. Sealer. Marker. You understand? So what we have is we have this false trinity who is trying to counterfeit the work of God. Because what is God's work? The Father has given authority because what does Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me. So the Father passes the authority to the Son, and the Son, then through the giving of the Holy Spirit promise, gives power to His people, that the work might be finished in them, and that then they might go finish the work in the world. The dragon wants to counterfeit. Who says, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 14, because some people get confused. Wait a second, I thought the dragon was trying to take the place of Christ. What does Isaiah 14 say? I will set up my throne above the stars of heaven. I will be like the Most High. The dragon has his authority. He passes his authority onto the sea beast. The sea beast then counterfeits the ministry of Jesus. Just so we can be very clear, the sea beast, and I don't have time to expound on all of this, but the sea beast is identified with what? The papal system. The papal system is a replacement for Jesus' ministry. Folks, I did not grow up in the Adventist church. I grew up in the Roman Catholic church. I have experienced this personally. And it is a vastly amazing thing to realize that you can go and pray to Jesus directly. See, Jesus says there is, the Bible says there is one mediator between God and men. And who is that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? I'll just tell you a story to kind of loosen it just a little bit for a moment. I'll never forget. 
Growing up, I used to have to go to confessional. And it was the most terrifying thing that I ever experienced in my life. Because you wait, and there's a room, and there's a red light and a green light. And when the green light goes on, you go in. And then you confess all your sins. And by the way, folks, I'm not poking fun at anybody, okay? Our Catholic brothers and sisters are longing to hear a message that we have. I am going to tell you, Adventism, if you don't believe this, then you need to study more. Adventism is the answer to, first and foremost, false Babylonian confused religion. But Adventism, wonderfully, is the answer to the total opposite. Atheistic, secular postmodernism. It is the answer. Adventism is the answer. God has raised up this movement as the answer. But I used to be terrified. And I'd go in and I'd confess. And then the the, the priest would say, okay, you need to leave and this is your penance. And you need to say, for our fathers and 15 Hail Marys and say the rosary three times. And then you'd go out and I'd get so tired of doing all this that I'd leave and then I'd have to confess it when I went back again. It was just this terribly vicious cycle to come and realize I could pray directly to Jesus. See, this whole system is set up to replace the ministry of Jesus. This system is set up to sacrifice Jesus over and over and over and over again. The Bible says that Jesus had to die once for all. We got it? Okay. Now folks, if I see I'm a little excited about this, let me tell you something. When I was attending Andrews University, there were two undergraduate students and a seminary student who was sponsored by an unnamed conference that during my time there converted to Catholicism. Why? And, and, and that's the reaction of most people. How is that possible? Folks, if we do not understand the Holy Spirit promise that the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness to live by righteousness by faith, which is the whole idea that I can't work my way to heaven, I am fully dependent upon Christ, but He works on me to conform me to citizenship in heaven, but those works are not depending, my salvation is not dependent upon those works. If we don't have that settled in our mind, this is the place we're going to go. Because it's very clear. Practice the seven sacraments and you'll go to heaven. My catechism said, exact words, the surest and shortest way to heaven is through the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? The wafer that you have when you have communion. So what's the surest and shortest way to heaven? Partake of communion every single day. Or every single week. You understand? So folks, if we don't have righteousness by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, clear in our mind, we are making ourselves... So we sit here in GYC and we say, that's impossible. I would never apostatize. I will stand for Jesus. Folks, if we're not studying the Word, and we're going to talk about this in our last session, if we're not studying the Word, if we are not filled with the Holy Spirit... If we are not following God, standing for Him in the small things now, we are deluding ourselves to believing we'll stand in the last days. Because, folks, think about this. This says here that the mark will be enforced so you can buy or sell. Now, I want, to th- I want you to think about this morning and all the things you did this morning and how many of them could you have acquired for free. To turn on the water at most people's homes requires water coming from a water station. 
typically most of us have to pay a water bill. This morning when I charged my iPhone, my iPad, my MacBook, my computer, whatever it may be, that requires electricity. The last time I checked, which was just a couple of days ago, the electric company is very happy to receive money out of my checking account. Okay? Now, you are staying in a hotel, but most of you live in a dorm, or you live in a rental, or you live in a home. This requires money. Now, granted, we went and stood in line, and, oh, magically, the breakfast appeared before us. But somebody paid for that so it could be there. You understand what I'm saying? And so we minimize this and say, oh, I'll stand. I'll stand that day. I'm not going to stand today when I'm faced with the decision whether I steal this little bit of money or when I'm faced with the decision with my boyfriend or girlfriend or when I'm faced with this decision on whether to go to a party or when I'm faced with it. It's okay. You know, I can come back to the Lord. And while that may be very true that you can come back to the Lord, we have to understand if we're not willing to stand in the small things, when this comes, this is going to come with such sweeping force Unless we are found in the Holy Spirit, we're going to be in big trouble. So we've, we've got this false trinity working against us. We have a false clock working against me too. So I will. So, so, so you have this lamb-like beast who, and okay, so we have the papal power. The land beast represents who? The land beast represents the United States of America as it is manifested through free Protestantism being here. It is the false Protestant movement. The false, the false revival movement comes out of as it's nestled in the United States of America. What's happening then? We have all of this going on, and God is wanting to seal us. Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. God wants to seal us with the seal. Well, let's start in Revelation 7 and then we'll go to Ephesians 1. Revelation chapter 7 tells us about the sealing of the saints. After these things I saw, this is in verse 1, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth and on the sea and on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Why does the seal? Because we have, again, we have the reality and the counterfeit. The reality is a seal where? On the, the, the seal is on the forehead. By the way, that word in the Greek, on, can literally be translated in. In the forehead. What's in your forehead? The frontal lobe. What's the frontal lobe for? Decision making, character, and your will. The mark, though, happens where? On the forehead and on your hand. Why? Because it demonstrates there will be some people who conscientiously make a decision to rebel against the Most Holy God. But then there will be others who simply say, I'm going along for the ride and I won't do anything. Folks, here's the reality. If we sit on the fence... We've made our decision. Joshua says, choose whom this day you will serve. The choice is you are either for or you are against. There is no middle ground. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that it is the Holy Spirit that seals us. Ephesians chapter 1. 
and verse 4, I believe it is. Verse 13, I'm sorry. Ephesians 1 and verse 13. Ephesians 1 and verse 13. Notice what it says. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Again, the sealer. Who is the sealer? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for what? The day of redemption. The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is number one, to prepare, and we often will say to prepare us, to prepare me, to prepare me for the day of redemption. And then as the Holy Spirit prepares me, it also prepares me to go with power to change the world. Evidence and in point, those who have been with me know this. The disciples, right before the death of Jesus, do they have a full comprehension of the ministry of Jesus? Absolutely not. In fact, what are the disciples most concerned about on their way to the upper room Last Supper experience? Who's greatest and themselves? But Acts chapter 2 says that 40 days later, all of a sudden, that's all changed. Now what are they most concerned with? The Bible says they are of one accord. The Holy Spirit has transformed them now that when they go out with power, not only are they talking the talk, but they are walking the walk. I want you to notice these words from the third testimony, page 267. Who are standing in the counsel of God at this time? It is those who virtually excuse wrongs. Excuse me. Who are standing in the counsel of God at this time? Is it those who virtually excuse wrongs among the professed people of God and who murmur in their hearts, if not openly, against those who would reprove sin? Is it those who take their stand against them and sympathize with those who commit wrong? No, indeed. Unless they repent and leave the work of Satan in oppressing those who have the burden of the work and in holding up the hands of sinners in Zion, they will never receive the mark of God's sealing approval. They will fall in the general destruction of the wicked, represented by the work of the five men bearing slaughter weapons. Mark this point with care. Those who receive the pure mark of truth, wrought in them by the power of the Holy Ghost, represented by a mark, excuse me, represented by a mark by the man in linen, are those that sigh that, and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the church. Their love for purity and the honor of glory of God, the, and glory of God is such. And they have so clear a view of the exceeding sinfulness of sin that they are represented as being in agony, even sighing and crying. And she recommends reading Ezekiel chapter 9. That's exactly, and this is her note. Read the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. Folks, this is the whole issue in the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a distinction. It is a dividing line. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working on our behalf to change us, to be transformed, and we are to pray how often for the Holy Spirit? We pray daily. Just as Paul said, I die 
daily, a daily preparation. By the way, I want to be very clear so none of you think that I'm getting at some kind of internally perfectionistic, perfectionistic ideas. 1 John 2, 1, it's my favorite verse in the Bible. What does it say? My little children, I write these things to you that ye might not sin. But, and actually in the English it says and, but it can be translated but, and I prefer but. But, if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, so what is the whole point here, folks? The Holy Spirit is working in our life to give us power to overcome, to overcome sin. If we stumble and fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, and the verse read last night by David, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We will be saved by His righteousness. And so along that path, if we stumble and fall, we keep looking to Him and we get up and we get back on the path. Too often, friends, we stumble and then we just lay on the ground. Jesus says, get up and keep on treading forth. Those that receive the seal of God will be those. And by the way, and some of you are saying, I understand the seal of God, the mark of the beast. It's a controversy over the Sabbath and Sunday. I get all of that. I'm not giving you new light here. But the Sabbath will be sealed upon those. Sabbath keepers will be those who are part of the remnant. And what does Jesus say in John 13, 35? By this you will know that they are my disciples. They have love for one another. The Holy Spirit has been working in their lives. And they will manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Does that make sense to everyone? And so the Sabbath Sunday controversy is certainly over a day of worship. But just because I happen to park my car and walk into a building on Sabbath doesn't mean that I am a genuine believer and follower of Jesus. It is when the Holy Spirit is working in me and the fruits of the Spirit are being manifested in my life. This is why Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. Folks, and the question that we ask in this Mark of the Beast controversy is, are we producing good fruit? Ellen White uses this term, understanding the sinfulness of sin. I've used this analogy often. I don't, I don't know. I'm in a different part of the country here. Do you all in Washington have pig farms? I'm assuming from the silence, no. Okay. Have, how many of you have ever passed a pig farm in your life? How many of you have ever been to the zoo in your life? How many of you have ever seen an animal in your life? Okay. <laughs> Typically on a pig farm, you can smell it from a long ways away. And it's not the most pleasant aroma that you've ever experienced in your life. But here's the question. Go visit that pig farm and knock on the door of the farmhouse. And when the pig farmer comes out, say, why does it smell so bad here? And what will he say? What do you, no, he'll say, what are you talking about? Why? Because he's become accustomed. And if you spend 15, 20, 30 minutes at that pig farm, guess what? You will too. And here's the fascinating thing. 
And this some of you may have experienced. I attended Andrews. And they have a dairy at Andrews. And there are people who work at the dairy. Not only do they become accustomed to the smell at the dairy, but they actually acquire the smell at the dairy. And so they'll come around you and you'll be like, something just doesn't smell right. (laughs) And you finally figure out that they work at the dairy. Why? They don't even know. And it's not that they haven't showered. See, they've externally, they've cleaned themselves. But see, it's embedded itself in their pores. And this is the sinfulness of sin. We become so used to sin, we become accustomed to it. And the call of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, then show us what the right thing to do is, and prepare us for the judgment. Why? Because the mark of the beast controversy is coming when there will be a final day, when a mark will be drawn in the road, and you'll either be on the right side or the wrong side. There will be no middle ground. Does that make sense to everyone? And this is the beauty. There is no second chance. We're living in the time of the second chance. Jesus came the first time. We weren't ready. Now Jesus is coming a second time, and there's no second chance after that. So the mark of the beast controversy and the Holy Spirit is all about being sealed by the Holy Spirit to be prepared so we will be able to stand. Because will we be able to stand by our power? No, because the Bible says, not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit, and this is, folks, it fascinates me as I study this. The Spirit is sent on the earth to convict us of sin. So we will repent, so we will be converted, so then we pray for the baptism of the Spirit, and then God gives us the power to live the life free from sin. He's made every provision possible so we don't even have to worry about the mark of the beast as long as we're found in him and sealed by the Holy Spirit. In our last session, we'll talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and what does that mean. But the point of this is, folks, is God is making a way for us. There is the real Trinity. The real Trinity at all times is far more powerful than the counterfeit. The Bible says we must study to show ourselves approved. Why? Because we have to study these things and and work at these things so that way we're perceptive. Because notice, notice, in the world, I live live in Hagerstown, Maryland. I'm about an hour from D.C. Counterfeiters, the people who are counterfeit experts, they don't spend any time looking at counterfeits. All of their time is spent looking at the genuine reality. Why? Because if you spend all your time looking at the genuine, as soon as that counterfeits in front of you, you've got it. Folks, sometimes we spend far too much time studying about what the devil will do and not enough time about what God is doing. Amen. Okay? Does that make And I'm not telling you you can't read books about things that are happening. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is the bulk of our time needs to be in his word. The bulk of his to- our time needs to be in the spirit of prophecy. Because the spirit of prophecy, the word will outline the reality in such clear and distinct lines that when this counterfeit comes, we will not be deceived. Does that make sense? Now I was going to talk about the latter rain, but we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to read a quote. We'll take our five-minute break, and I'll come back 
I will talk briefly about the latter rain and what the latter rain's doing. I'll go into the false deceptions that are currently happening that we need to be in tune with in our church. And then the last session this afternoon, how to protect ourselves. So let's read this last quote before we take our break. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it really summarizes everything that we have been talking about. I'm going to try to, I get a little excited, so I read fast, but I'll, I'm going to slow it down. I'm, I'm shifting down right now. This is Christ Object Lessons, page 66, okay? The plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. It sends down its roots into the earth. It drinks in the sunshine, the dew, and the rain. It receives the life-giving properties from the air. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies. Hang on one second here. I just uh, lost my place. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies. Feeling our helplessness, we are to improve all the opportunities granted us to gain a fuller experience. As the plant takes root in the soil, so we are to take deep root in Christ. As the plant receives the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, we are to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. The work is to be done, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. If we keep our minds stayed upon Christ, He will come into us as the rain, as the latter rain, and as the former rain on the earth. As the Son of Righteousness, He will arise upon us with healing in His wings. We shall grow as the lily. We shall receive as the corn and grow as the vine. By constantly relying upon Christ as our personal Savior, we shall grow up into Him in all things who is our head. The wheat develops first the blade, then the ear. After that, the full corn in the ear. The object of the husbandman in the sowing of the seed in the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. He desires bread for the hungry and seed for future harvest. So the divine husbandman looks for a harvest as the reward of his labor and sacrifice. Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men, and he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer, that it may be reproduced in others. The plant does not germinate, grow, or bring forth fruit for itself, but to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So no man is to live unto himself. The Christian is in the world as a representative of Christ for the salvation of other souls. There can be no growth of fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. If you have accepted Christ as a personal Savior, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of His goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart and by every means in your power seek to save the lost. As you receive the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase. Your convictions deepen. Your love be made more perfect. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. 
This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. There's more to that text, but I'll read the rest in the second section. Folks, this is the whole point of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I told some of you yesterday, I just recently have gotten into grafting apple trees. Some of you may garden. No one that I know grows a garden to grow green plants. They grow to produce fruit, vegetables. The Christian life, GYC is a wonderful thing. Church services that are powerful are a wonderful thing. But that's the greenery. God wants to produce fruit. And fruit is our characters and the expression of the fruits of the Spirit. The seal of God and the mark of the beast is an issue of producers of fruit, producers of death. Will we be those who have fruit production happening in us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we want to be fruit bearers, Lord. We want to produce fruit in abundance. So, Lord, please baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, drive us in our conviction and our understanding of the sinfulness of sin that we might truly be converted. And in our true conversion, Lord, prepare our hearts for the judgment. Not because we want to live in fear, but Lord, because we want to be providing fruit so you might sow more seed for the harvest. Oh God, work a mighty work in us. May we be sealed with the seal of the living God by the Holy Spirit for that day of redemption. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.